Good evening. It is good to see everyone here tonight. I am so utterly confused about what day this is. I had forgotten we were having services tonight. And then uh, when I got it in my head today, I've been thinking all day long that tomorrow is Thanksgiving. So it is, uh, it's been very confusing, but it is good for us to be together tonight. And looks like uh, we've got about what we normally do in here. So that's good. Let me see if I can get my notes started here. Let's begin with the word of prayer and uh, then we will pick up. Shall we pray? Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful, Lord, that we can be, to be here together tonight. We're thankful for the fellowship that we have and how that strengthens us. We're thankful for your word, for the book of Acts. We pray that as we go through it tonight, we will glean those things that will help us to be strong and faithful to you. Dear Father, we ask that you'll be with us and our families and those traveling in the next couple of days for the Thanksgiving holiday. Give us safety. We pray that you'll bless this church, Father, and the elders that are here. Continue to give them wisdom and strength. Our Father, we're thankful for the good elders and the good deacons we have that are laboring in this church. We pray, Father, that as we are about to bring in a new youth minister, that uh, he will be a strength to this congregation, that will make him feel welcome, that the church will benefit from that. Our Father, we ask that we'll do all things to your glory. Forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in Acts chapter 16. You remember that uh, we had covered the first missionary journey. On that journey, Paul and Silas had established, or Paul and Barnabas had established several churches. After a long period of time, they have decided we're going to go back and visit those churches again. And Paul and Barnabas have a major disagreement. The Bible says a sharp contention. And because of that, it ends up being two groups that go out. You have Paul, who chooses a new individual. His name is Silas. And, of course, Barnabas takes his nephew, John Mark, with him. We don't know much about what happens with uh, Barnabas. In fact, we don't know anything about what happens with uh, Mark and uh, Barnabas because the Bible picks up and it traces Paul and Silas on their journey. And so in Acts chapter 16, as it begins, they go to Derby and Lystra. And let me see how much of this I can zoom in on. This is the second missionary journey. They begin here in Antioch in the middle. And then they're going to come over here, tracing through the purple. You can see, let me see, there we go. We can go through Tarsus, where Paul is actually from. Then they come to this area. It is uh, Iconium, Derby, Lystra. And in this area, they're going to hook up with Timothy. Now, Timothy seems to have been converted on the first missionary journey, but it is here that they asked Timothy, would you like to travel with us? And we learn, we're told that Timothy's mother was a Jewess, but his daddy was a Greek. And so because of that, they decided if he's going to come with us, we need to do what? You remember what the decision was? We're going to circumcise him. Number one, why was he not circumcised? Well, we're told that his daddy was a Greek. And so it seems that his dad said, we're not doing this. Because typically, if you were a Jew, you would have circumcised your son. But they said, we're not doing this. And so Paul, on this, this point, Timothy is a grown man, but Paul said, 
we need to circumcise him. People know that his daddy is a Greek. We need to circumcise him. Now, we talked about this last week. We learn about another young preacher a little later. His name is Titus. And in Galatians 2, 1 through 5, Paul says about Titus, we absolutely will not circumcise him before we travel with him. And it's a very interesting contrast. One young preacher, he says, we are going to circumcise him as a matter of expediency. On the other, it seems like some people are trying to force it and said, you've got to be circumcised. And so Paul says, we will not do it. He didn't want to give way to make it look like this was something that had to be done. But in the first case with Timothy, he thought, it's going to make it easier. We don't want every single city that we go into, and we're trying to preach the gospel. We've just got to go round and round over this issue of circumcision. And so it's a matter of expediency. All right, we get to chapter 16 and verse number 4. Do I have a reader tonight, or am I, am I the man tonight? All right, chapter 16 and verse number 5. So they're traveling. The churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. All right. Uh, in fact, if you back up to verse 4, as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. You might remember when they had the council that took place, that there were some decisions that were made. Number one, you don't have to be circumcised, and you don't have to keep the law of Moses, because some of the Jews were trying to force that. They did make a decree... And that is this, that there were certain things that they had to do. It was important, and I highlighted that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. These things came from God. This was not the elders and the apostles just making a decision because they met together. And that is something that the Catholic Church has used to try to teach that. Three main things were in this decree. Abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, things strangled, and blood. So every city they went to the Gentiles, they stressed these things. All right? And then in verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in faith, they increased in number. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And so what you've got here is they're traveling, they pick up Timothy, and then they're traveling on, and here is Phrygia, and uh, here is Galatia. And so the Holy Spirit tells them, don't come into this. They come through here. The Holy Spirit's going to tell them, don't go into Asia and don't go into this area. And uh, you can see there's a note here on the chart that actually says that. That's an interesting thing. Why does the Holy Spirit tell them, don't go into Asia? Why did the Holy Spirit say that? Okay. He had other plans. We actually don't know the reason. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't know if the Holy Spirit told them. But the Holy Spirit said, go this other way. There is a plan. Now, today, if you had missionaries and they were traveling, the Holy Spirit's not going to tell them this. And so, if someone were traveling today and they said, let's go into Asia and preach the word there, would that be wrong for them to do? Wouldn't be wrong. We're going to use our judgment. But at that point in time, the church was being established, and the Holy Spirit told them, don't go into Asia. And I think the reason would be there are some more fertile places 
that you need to go at this point in time. Now, it's interesting just to note, as a side note, the Holy Spirit told them not to go into Asia. There are religious groups who do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person or has personage. In fact, I was in a lectureship just a few weeks ago, and there was a member of the church, it was a preacher's wife, and we were sitting at the table and we learned that she did not believe that the Holy Spirit is a real person. And one of the other preachers on the lectureship had a long, I mean, they must have spent an hour discussing this, but the Holy Spirit can feel, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, the Holy Spirit speaks, and the Holy Spirit tells them here, don't go into Asia. All right, verse number 7 says, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. That is also interesting, but the Holy Spirit is going to say, don't go into Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit has a plan here. Now, this is interesting because when I click this, let's see, where did I put that? Here it is. At the bottom of the chart here, you see 1 Peter 1.1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispensation in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Later on, the Lord's church is in Bithynia. How did it get there? At some point, it was preached there. So the Holy Spirit said, don't go into Bithynia. Got other plans right now. The church does get established in Bithynia. All right, so verse number 8. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And so you can see on the journey, here is Mysia. They come to Troas right on the coast here. It says in verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. This is oftentimes called the Macedonian call. This was a vision from God. The Holy Spirit was directing them at this point in time, This is where I want you to go. And so the man from Macedonia, you can see in the upper corner here, if I can get this to be still, in the upper corner here is Macedonia. Got an earthquake going on here. Here's uh, Macedonia up in the top, and the Lord is sending them to Macedonia. All right, verse. And of course, God doesn't talk to us this way today. We don't have a vision where the Lord is saying go here or go there. But at that point in time, the Lord was working in this manner. Verse number ten. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel there. It is significant that he says immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia. Prior to this, he says, they did this. He went here. Paul did this. But now he says, we went to Macedonia. What's the significance of that? Okay. The author now is part of this party. You can pick up some things in the book of Acts... Who wrote the book of Acts? you remember when we did the introduction? Luke. At this point, apparently, Luke joins them. And so as you follow the language like that, you can pick up on some significant things. So Luke has joined them, and Luke says, We sought to go to Macedonia, and verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, and you can see Troas right here on the coast, sailing from Troas... We ran a straight course to Samothrace, 
And the next day we came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part in Macedonia, a colony, and we stayed there in that city for some days. All right, they have come to Philippi. Do you recognize Philippi? Why, why does Philippi stick out in your mind? What's that? Okay, because we have the letter of Philippians. This becomes a very significant city. Some uh, very key things are going to happen that are recorded in the book of Acts in Philippi. And then later, Paul is going to write a letter back to them. That becomes the book of Philippians. All right, verse number 13 says, And on the Sabbath day... Now, if I stop right there for a minute, what did they normally do on the Sabbath day when they came into a new city? Okay, normally they would go to the synagogue because the Jews were going to be meeting there. That's the place you go if you want to convert Jews. But it says, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. Why did they go to the riverside instead of the synagogue? Okay, apparently there's not a synagogue. Now, what I have read is, in order for there to be a synagogue, there had to be at least 10 Jewish males, 10 families. Once they got to that size, they would establish a synagogue. The fact that there is not a synagogue would indicate that there is a low population of Jews here. It was also their custom that if they did not have a synagogue, they would meet by the riverside. And so, this is where they head. Paul goes out to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who met there. This is also interesting. It may indicate there are very, very few Jewish males here, and so this is an area where the Jewish women would meet to worship. Verse 14 now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Lydia is one that we remember. She becomes a key figure in the book of Acts, and she was from the city of Thyatira. My son preaches in Mississippi, uh, outside of Senatobia, Mississippi, and he preaches for the Thyatira Church of Christ. Several places have picked up this, this name over the years, and so that's become significant to us. She was a seller of purple. What do you know about purple in the New Testament? Purple garments. Okay, royalty. Why would royalty wear purple? It was expensive. People that wore purple were uh, people that had money. They are people that uh, were upper crust. They were people of royalty. I was reading that it took about 8,000 mollusks to produce one gram of dye to make purple. Now, there was a less expensive form of dye. It says it was extracted from the matter root, but purple dye was very expensive. Now, several commentaries I read said, this must mean that Lydia was a woman of great means, that she was wealthy. And I thought, I'm not sure why you necessarily conclude that. You know, I've gone into uh, stores sometimes. In fact, uh, when we were on the lectureship on Palm Beach Lakes a few weeks ago, 
it was a, there was a mall there in a rich area. This was not far from where Donald Trump's uh, house is. And we drove by his house and we looked at it. It's impressive. All of those houses down there are impressive. We drove by and saw a Rush Limbaugh's house. Of course, he's passed away. But it's people of money. So we went into the mall. And every store in there is this rich, ritzy store. I mean, it, it's the kind that we were just window shopping. But you go in there, and there's people working in these stores, in these rich stores. I don't assume that those people had money just because they worked there and sold this. So I don't know if this necessarily means that Lydia had money or not, but she was a seller of purple. She at least sold to people who had money. Now, I want you to notice this. It says... And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. This is a very important phrase. The denominational world has focused in on this, that the Lord opened her heart. Is this true that the Lord opened her heart? On the Sabbath day, they went out to the city, uh, to the riverside. I forgot I'd made a slide of this because I did it a couple weeks ago. But they went out to the riverside they sat down, they met a woman there. Her name is Lydia. It says she's a seller of purple from Thyatira. She worshiped God, and the Lord opened her heart. Is it true that God opened her heart? Yeah, it's true. The Bible says that. We can't dispute the fact that the Lord opened her heart. The question is, if I can skip ahead to it, the question is, how? How did the Lord open her heart? Now, let me give you a background to this and tell you why this is such an important thing. It is taught by the denominational world that we have a sinful nature. We are born with a, a sin nature. And because of that, we're wicked. We can't understand. And so, for us to be able to receive the Word of God... The Holy Spirit has to work on us and open our heart to the gospel. Have you ever heard that before? Okay. If you are studying, in fact, this is something that is commonly believed in Calvinism. Most denominations believe some form of this. In fact, let me back up to some of these things. You might say, where in the world do they get this? Here's one key passage that they go to to get this. And it's Ephesians 2 and verse 3, among whom, that is the world, also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. And so they take that passage and they will say that we were, we were born that way. By nature we were the children of wrath. And they focus on that phrase, by nature, the children of wrath. And they say, we were naturally sinners. We were born that way. From the moment we entered this world, we had a sin nature. By nature, we were the children of wrath. Sometimes you hear people refer to it as a fallen nature. Have you ever heard it that way? We have a fallen nature. Sometimes it's called original sin. When you hear people talk about original sin, the sin nature, the fallen nature, they're all talking about the same thing. So what is this? 
you might say, why are you spending so much time on this? This is important that you understand this if you're going to talk to people who have this background, which is a lot of, quote, Christendom or the, the denominational world. What is this sin nature? It is believed, here are three things about it, although we retain a shadow of the image of God in us, our primary nature now is the fallen nature of Adam. Number two, we are not naturally inclined toward good, but rather just the opposite. We are naturally inclined to do evil. And number three, by nature, at birth, we are wicked. And so the idea is that when Adam and Eve sinned, that their nature was corrupted. And this is passed on to everybody from Adam. This is the idea that some people have of inherited sin, the fallen nature. And the belief then, some people have even carried this so far as to say, that's the reason you got to baptize babies. Because they inherited this sin nature. Some people have twisted it to say, this is the reason Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Because if he had had an earthly father, the sin nature would have been passed through the father. And so there have been all sorts of beliefs tied to this idea of a sin nature. Um, you might say, I don't know that people really believe this. I don't know who holds this. Let me read you a couple of quotes here. This is from Charles Stanley. He says, Romans 6.16 says that we are the slaves of the one whom we obey. Slaves of either sin or obedience to the Lord. And he says this, because every human is born with a fallen nature. Being the master of our own lives is the same as being enslaved to sin. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was probably the most famous Baptist preacher who ever lived. Commenting on the idea of the sinful nature, he says this, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. Several years ago, when our kids were younger, we had a book about dinosaurs, and we were teaching our, our kids what the biblical perspective of what really happened to the dinosaurs. And so this book talked about the Garden of Eden, and it talked about Adam and Eve living in the garden with all the other animals, including the dinosaurs, and then it mentions their sin. And this is what it says. Now, because we are the descendants of Adam, and we are sinners just like him, our very nature is such that we don't really want to obey God. That's why we are so easily led astray by evolutionists teaching things such as millions of years of history. Down deep in our hearts, we would rather listen to the fallible scientist opinions than the clear word of God. Then a few pages over, it says this. Why don't scientists believe that God created the world? And why don't they believe in the flood? And here's the answer they give. Scientists are sinners. Because of this, they don't want to believe. It has nothing to do with the evidence. It says there is an exception, of course, for those whose hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit becoming Christians. If you spend time reading this, there is a lot of information like this. I don't think that most denominations even are aware of this. 
Do you ever hear the phrase, a born-again Christian? What does that mean to be? People will say, are you a born-again Christian? Well, if you're a Christian, you are born again. That's what it means to be born again, is you become a Christian. So a born-again Christian would be a born-again, born-again. It's kind of redundant to say that. But what they mean is, a born-again Christian is one who now has the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has operated on your heart. Um, let's see, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I've got a lot of information about this. Here's another passage that they would use to teach this. Psalm 58 and verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Now what's the idea? Where would they be going with that idea? That the wicked are estranged from the womb. Soon as you are born, you are estranged from the womb. Somebody says, see it says you're sinful from birth. It says that they are born speaking lies. How would you explain that passage? That does say that you're estranged from the womb. Sounds like you're born in sin. Sounds like you have inherited, doesn't it? A couple of things you got to keep in mind. Number one, this is a psalm. It is highly poetic in its nature. It contains a lot of figures of speech. As a matter of fact, this verse is a hyperbole. A hyperbole is an exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. This is not literal. How do I know this? If you keep reading, for one it says, they are, uh, they are born speaking lies. When you're born, can you speak? Can you tell lies as soon as you're born? Well, then this is not literal. This is exaggeration to make a point. It means that you get into this and you start doing it at a very young age. In fact, if you get to verse number 6, you get down and it says that we need to break the, break the teeth in their mouth, break out the fangs of the young lions. Are they literally lions? What's the point here? This is exaggeration for the point, for the sake of emphasis. Now, consider some questions here. If babies are born as sinners and have a sinful nature, then what would happen to a baby if it died? Absolutely. Because if you have a sinful nature and the Holy Spirit has to operate, you, op operate on you and change you, if you died as a baby, you would be lost. All right? How about this? If we sin because we have a sinful nature, then why did Adam sin? Okay. Adam was created by God, pure in the garden, and the reason Adam sinned was he saw a temptation. He had the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He gave in to it, and he sinned exactly the same way that we sin. They say that we sin because we've got a fallen nature and we are following in the pattern of Adam. And yet Adam sinned and he supposedly did not have this. Number three, what would it say about the justice of God if he, if it, if he charged me with the sin that somebody else committed? What's that? There would be no justice whatsoever. If I had the sin of Adam charged to me, 
there would be a very serious problem with the justice of God. So where do people get this idea that we are born in sin or the idea of a sin nature? i tell you one place that I think that this idea has come from in recent years. It's because of one particular translation of the Bible. The NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, was translated by people who believe in Calvinism. Calvinism is, I put it up on the board, remember one night, tulip? And it spells out the ideas of John Calvin. One of his ideas is that we inherit sin. And so in this particular version of the Bible, the NIV, every time they run across the Greek word sarx, which is the word that means flesh, they translate it as sinful nature. 23 times in the NIV you can find the phrase sinful nature. No other translation that I looked in could I find that. And I looked in the King James, the New King James, the, A the ASV, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard, the English Standard, so I checked six or seven reputable versions. None of them have the phrase sinful nature. They all translate sarks as flesh. But see, that's why a version of the Bible is so important. If you get a version that has a prejudice in it, they've inserted the idea of sinful flesh, sinful nature, and the Bible doesn't say that. Let me read you one more thing, and I'll move on from this. This is from a website, a man, a denominational man, and he believes that we are born with the sinful nature. He's, his name is James Taylor, not the singer, but he says, New, newborn infants legitimately cry for one of three reasons. Hunger, soiled diapers and pain, usually from gas, he says, during the first few weeks or months of a baby's life when Whenever he cries, mama will feed him, change his diaper, and burp him and take care of him. When she sets him back down, everything is okay. But after a few months, when she sets him down, he continues to cry. Now he is crying for your attention, but you thought it was hunger, soil, diaper, or pain. Then on Sunday, while sitting in church, he begins to cry during the church service. Taking him out and checking for hunger, soil, diaper, or pain, you find nothing. But he stops crying until you return into the service. Then he starts it all over again. He is tired of sitting still, and he wants to get down and play. Then, when you get in the car to go home or go on a trip, the same thing happens all over again. Now is the time to realize that, quote, the wicked are estranged from the womb, and they go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Lies and sin in general is based on a natural self-centeredness. This self-centeredness is part of man's fallen sin nature that we inherited from Adam. How about that? The baby is crying because of his self-centeredness, the nature that he inherited from Adam. I've got the idea a lot of places that teach this, the people in the, the pews, if they knew that that was being taught, or they knew that this was the doctrine behind this, they would say, we don't believe that. That is nonsense. And the Bible does not teach this. That's why when we come across these passages, we have to stop and we have to understand it so that when we run across it, we can say, 
That's not right. That is not right, and I'm not going to believe this. What does the Bible teach? Number one, the Bible teaches that babies are not born evil, and they are not inclined to evil. Matthew 19 and verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come unto me, do not forbid them. You remember the next part? For such is the kingdom of heaven. If a baby dies, that baby goes to be with the Lord. Everyone who has ever miscarried a baby, that baby goes, carried by angels, to Abraham's bosom. It goes to paradise. Secondly, the Bible teaches we do not inherit the sin of Adam or anyone else. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, neither shall the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Thirdly, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29 says that God makes us good. Each person is made good, not inheriting the sin of someone else. And then fourthly, Isaiah 59, 1 through 8 says, Your sin, your sin separates you from God. Not somebody else's sin, not sin inherited from Adam, but it is your own sin. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's go back and talk about Lydia for a minute. The Bible says the Lord opened her heart. What they say is because man is born in sin, a man can't understand, a woman can't understand, and so the Holy Spirit has to come into your corrupted, sinful nature and open your heart, and they say this is an example of it. Before she could obey the gospel, the Lord had to operate on her heart. The Bible does say the Lord opened her heart. The question that we want to know is how? How did the Lord open her heart? This is an important question, and it is a legitimate question. How does God open our heart, and how did God open her heart? Look at the text. To heed the things that were spoken by Paul. How does the Holy Spirit open our hearts? Through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts by the Word. The Word is sufficient. It is able to do all things necessary to life and godliness. So I want you to look at a couple of passages here. This is Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4. I love this passage. By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. If you want to understand the Word of God, do you need the Holy Spirit to operate on your heart? Do you need the Holy Spirit to change you in some miraculous way? What do you have to do to understand the Word of God? Okay. According to this, what does he say you need to do? You've got to read it. If you will read it, you may understand it. How does the Holy Spirit operate on your heart today? Through the Word, when you read it. That, that's how it works. Um, we could go through a lot of passages here. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 14 says that the veil was unlifted in their reading of the Old Testament. Why? Because their hearts are corrupted. And he discusses that. Two minutes. No bell tonight? Oh, Tuesday night, so the bells are off. I wish you hadn't told me. We could just kept going on here. All right, so... 
How was she converted? He spoke the word to her, and the Lord opened her heart. That's interesting because some people hear the word of God, and they react differently. Some people's hearts are opened by the word. Some people's hearts are, har are hardened by the word. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 that Peter preached the word to them? And what happened to them? What happened to their hearts? They were pricked to their hearts, and they obeyed the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches exactly the same message. What happened to their hearts? The Bible says they were cut to the heart. Yes, sir? Yes, exactly right. Just like the people in Acts chapter 7, when they heard the word, they were cut to the heart. The people in Acts 2 heard the word, and they were pricked in the heart. And Pharaoh, when he heard the word of God, God hardened his heart. Just like God opened the heart, God hardened the heart. The message of God hardened some people's hearts, and it softens other people's hearts. And what we're told is Lydia heard the message, and God opened her heart. Now, you might think, okay, we get the point. This is very important that you understand this because an entire doctrine, some religions would fall based upon the point that we're making here. Okay, I guess we're probably out of time, right? That was probably two minutes. Okay, should we go on or should we stop? Okay, I just shouldn't ask that question. All right, we're out of time. Thank you very much. We will pick up there next week in verse number... 15.